Hi, and welcome to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. Uh, John, we're going into an interesting conversation today. Uh, what are you going to be telling us about today? Yeah, I want to talk about why the Bible is unlike any other book in human history. Yeah. And I'm also going to talk about the Bible as a story. That is to say, it's not a collection of stories. It's actually one story from Genesis to Revelation. And it's that one story that transforms the human heart. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward to that. And we'll also have an interview with you and Nancy Guthrie as you talk about the storyline of the Bible together as well. We look forward to that. So let's join Dr. Neufeld now. We're talking about the Bible today and why the Bible is a unique book. When I say the Bible is unique, I'm going to say that there is no other book in human history that is even remotely like the Bible. I know I'm supposed to say that. After all, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher, but I'm speaking about something that you can objectively weigh. This is objectively true. I'm gonna give you five reasons why the Bible is unlike any book that we have. I mean, first of all, the Bible is a book of verifiable history. It tells about people, about places, about events that happened a long time ago. And the more that we're learning about things like archeology span and manuscript evidence and so forth, the more we're finding out that everything that it talked about actually happened in real history. I'll give you some examples of that. I remember being in Jerusalem a number of years ago, and uh, it was an exciting time because in the city of David, now if you can imagine Jerusalem as it is today, and Jerusalem as it was 3,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, Jerusalem was a lot smaller than it is today. So when they talk about the city of David, they're talking about a very small section of Jerusalem, but archeologists were digging in this part of the city, and they found a number of clay jars, and inside the clay jars, they found the names of all of the royal officials of the ancient king Hezekiah, who's mentioned in the Bible. And what's fascinating is that the Bible names those very officials which they found in those clay jars. There are other examples of that. If you go to a place called Caesarea, and Caesarea is along the Mediterranean Sea in Israel, and at the time of Jesus, Caesarea would have been the place where the Roman governor would have had his location. And they found a, a, a stone in Caesarea, and it simply says Pontius Pilotus, Pontius Pilate, the very man who's mentioned in the Bible. Or you can go to a little fishing village named Capernaum. Jesus was there a lot. And in fact, we are told in the Bible that Jesus took two of his disciples, James and John, and says they were people who were sons of Zebedee. And there on an ancient stone from the first century, from the side of a house, was the inscription, Family of Zebedee. You know, you can go down the Nile River and see on one of the ancient temples that were located there, the inscription made by Egyptians, which indicates the exact year of the beginning of Solomon's reign. Everywhere that you look in the ancient world, we're seeing more and more evidence of the historicity of this book, so much so that Dr. Craig Evans says that Middle Eastern scholars today use the Bible as a primary text to tell us what actually happened in the ancient historical Near East. That's fascinating in and of itself. This is an ancient historical book that's verifiable. Couple of other things. Secondly, the Bible was written over a longer period of time than any book that was ever constructed in the past. I mean, think of it this way. 
If you go to Europe, you'll find some of the, the, the great cathedrals of Europe, and they took a hundred or hundreds of years to be completed. So craftsmen and stonemasons would have worked on it and then handed that craft over to their sons and to their sons and to their sons' sons. And so it took hundreds of years to complete. Think of the Bible this way. We know that the year that Israel came out of Egypt, as um, they came out as a slave nation, out of bondage, it was 1446 BC. If we grant one year later, 1445, Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments, and if the Ten Commandments were first given in 1445, and those are the first recorded words in the Bible, we also know that the last recorded words in the Bible are from the book of Revelation, which would have been written around 95 AD. So it's 1,600 years that it took to write this book. There is no other book in human history that's like that. A third reason that the Bible is unique is it's unique in its unity. Written over 1,600 years, it has one storyline from beginning to end. It tells the story that God was in the Messiah, that God was in Christ, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 says, that God was in the Messiah reconciling the world to himself. It's an incredible story, free of contradiction, telling the same story over 1,600 years. The fourth reason the Bible is absolutely unique is that over the successive generations in which it was written, it was written by such a diverse group of people. I mean, imagine this. Some of them were kings that wrote, some were farmers, some were highly educated, some wrote out of dungeons, some lived in prosperity and some in poverty, and the Bible contains such a wide variety of literary styles. Some is poetry, some is, poetry uh, some is prose. There's historical drama that's found there. Uh, there are genealogical lists. There are legal texts that are found there. And then there's this highly imaginative symbolic language in what we call apocalyptic literature. It's amazing the amount of different kinds of literature that we find. And furthermore, the Bible was written in three different languages, and it was written on three different continents. And then finally, the reason why the Bible is unique is the Bible has been translated into more languages than any other book in human history. In fact, it has sold more than 10 times more than any competitor. It is the most sold and the most read book in human history. By any objective standard, this book is different than all other human books. And now let me say this. If God wrote a book, you'd have to expect that the book that God wrote would be different than any other book that we possess, and that's precisely what we have in the Bible. It's remarkable, it's unique, and I would say this. It is unquestionably the word of the living God. We have in the Bible a book that's unique, written over 1,600 years, three different languages, multiple authors, and all throughout, it is telling one single story. I wanna take a little bit of time to try to get at that one story of the Bible. 
Look, a great many of us have known Bible stories. Some of you are watching me right now. You've, you've heard Bible stories that were told to you by your mom or in church or a number of different times. And so you tend to think about the Bible as a collection of stories. And in one sense, it really is. But as a matter of fact, it's just one story. All of the stories in the Bible tell one consistent, coherent thought. They tell us about a God who is reconciling the world to himself. So let me try, if I can, just briefly to tell you the storyline of the entire Bible. You know, the Bible begins by simply saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it doesn't mean that this is the beginning of everything because Psalm 90 verse two says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So when the Bible starts, it's not the beginning of everything. It's certainly not the beginning of God. But the Bible tells the story of the beginning of the created world, the great beginning of the universe and the one who made it and the one who made it with purpose. So the Bible tells the story that the God who created all things put purpose into what he had made. And so as God goes about creating all things, at the end of the created process, God creates a man and a woman who are uniquely made in his image and in some fashion reflect in themselves who God actually is. And that sets the stage for the drama of this book. So we have the beginning of creation and the creation is a marvelous thing. The creation is a place where the man and woman can live and fill the earth with their offspring who are themselves image bearers of God. And in fact, the Bible says that, you know, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. And that's the story. But as time progresses, we find that the man and the woman, rather than falling on their knees and worshiping God, decide to rebel against God. And here's the drama. You know, Bible scholars call this the fall. It's the fall from grace. It's the fall from the presence of God. It's the fall from our innocence and it's the fall into evil. And that's the story as well. And yet at the very point in time that the human race fell into evil, God makes a promise that he will send one who is born of a woman and he will redeem from evil. In other words, there is a chosen one who is to come and he will save the world from its sin. And that's the story. But as the human story begins in sin, we find out that it's, it's accompanied by both wonderful promise and human ingenuity and the ability to accomplish things. And at the same time, it's filled with overwhelming evil. The very first uh, murder happens very early on in the human race as a brother kills his brother. And from then on, violence seems to escalate, even as human ingenuity escalates. And finally, God intervenes and decides to send a flood which almost wipes out the entire human race. But after the flood, the human race rebuilds. But God does something that's unique. He decides to separate out nations and places nations at animosity with one another so that a super society of evil would never again be allowed to develop. And then when the story is telling about the grand sweep of God's uh, um, dealings with the nations, we suddenly see the Bible change focus from these grand sweep uh, statements about what the nations are all about to the speech of one man. The man's name is Abraham and he lived about 4,000 years ago. 
You know, it's fascinating because the Bible says in Genesis chapter 12 that God came to this man by the name of Abraham and said, I will surely bless you, and through you I will bless the nations. Now, what's fascinating today, here we are 4,000 years later, and about one half of the earth's population actually traces their spiritual heritage back to this one man by the name of Abraham. Who was he, and what was he all about? Well, God promised him that he would bless him and give him a land, which ends up being the land of Israel, but that through him he would bring this redeeming of the world, this, this, um, this forgiveness of sins, this reconciliation with God. Well, that small beginning, the story begins to take shape. Abraham has a family, the family grows. Finally, we find Abraham's descendants to be a nation of about two million people and they're in slavery. But God delivers them out of slavery, takes them to a place called Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments, the rules of holy living, teaches them how to worship, prepares them, and then moves them to the promised land, which is Israel. And as wonderful as that might be, because we are told that it was God's purpose that Israel would be a blessing to the whole world, the story seems to unravel, and it seems to hit a dead end. Israel finally rebels against God. Israel is involved in idolatry, and eventually their enemies come against them, ordered by God, and they go back into slavery in which they came. And you might think that's the end of the story, but it's really not. Israel does come back to their promised land with a promise that the chosen Messiah will come and he will redeem the world from evil. And in fact, when the New Testament begins, the story is told that finally, the very chosen one, the one that the human race has been waiting for since the time of its creation, is about to find that their creator steps into the human family. That's the beginning of the New Testament, and that really is the culmination of this wonderful story. The New Testament begins with the story of Jesus, and let's put it as frankly as we can. Jesus is the most important person in all of human history. More human beings know who Jesus is than any other person, living or dead. The fact is that Jesus Christ has changed human history. And when we read through the Bible, the first 39 books, those books that we call the Old Testament, lead us to this expectation that there is a Messiah coming. And when the New Testament opens up, we find that Jesus Christ has come. He is the long-expected one. And with that, the story of the Bible, that God is reconciling the world to himself, really comes to a head. This is the climax of the entire story. If you know anything about Jesus, you'll know that there was a central message that was there at all of his meetings. I mean, he would go and preach in various places, large crowds would come, and he would always preach the same thing. He would say, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in order to demonstrate that, he would heal the sick and he would do a number of other miracles. He'd drive out demons. In a number of cases, he raised the dead. All of these things were done, which led to this expectation that the long-awaited day of the Lord was at hand. Let me explain that. See, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord would be a day in which evil would come to an end and which God would reign. 
You know, the people in the Old Testament were expecting that, that sin and rebellion from God would eventually end. And there was no one else to end it but the one that God had chosen, his Messiah, the chosen one. Jesus comes and does things that no other human being has ever done before. And so there's this expectation that the kingdom of God was coming right now and that evil would end. But in the end of the day, something strange happens. There's a man by the name of John the Baptist who led the way to Jesus and he's arrested and finally he's, his head is chopped off and we find out as we continue to read through the New Testament that, that evil isn't going anywhere. In fact, it continues to stay here. And so we wonder how it can be that the man of God would come and he would announce the kingdom of God and there would be this hope that everything was about to change and yet evil continues to remain. But you have to go back to the Old Testament one more time and examine it more thoroughly and then everything begins to make sense. One of the passages uh, that is quoted more often uh, than almost any other in the Old Testament is a, is a passage from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. It talks about the suffering servant, the servant of God, the Messiah who is to come, who will be bruised and persecuted, he will be bloodied beyond recognition, and that his death will serve as a sacrifice for human sin. And that's eventually where the story of Jesus leads. Everything that we find about Jesus in the New Testament continues to lead to that one place, which is the place of the cross. You see, Jesus didn't go to the cross because things went badly for him. He went to the cross because he deliberately chose to go there. He believed that he had come, in his words, to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. He believed that his death was an atonement for the sins of all who would believe in him. And so, in order to illustrate this, I want to take you to a time right before Jesus was crucified. He's sitting at a place called the Mount of Olives, and if you don't know where that is, the Mount of Olives is actually on a hill which overlooks Jerusalem. If you can imagine, there's a hill that goes down into a steep ravine, and up the other side of the ravine is the city of Jerusalem, and, and Jesus sitting on the other side of the valley. And they're looking at Jerusalem, and the disciples are saying to Jesus, look, there's such wonderful stones in the temple. I mean, it's just, it's just a lovely place. And then Jesus turns to them and says, look, not one stone is gonna be left upon another. They're all gonna be thrown down. In fact, he says, this entire city is gonna be destroyed. Well, the disciples are horrified and they say to him, you know, this must be the end of the age that we're talking about. When will these things be? And then Jesus says, don't be in such a hurry. It's not going to come right away. And so he talks about his suffering and his death for the people. And then he also speaks about the time in the middle before his second coming when he comes to renew all things. And in fact, as we read through the rest of the New Testament, we see a number of things unfolding. A church begins to be developed and, and the church are the followers of Jesus Christ. There's a mission that they are given to declare the gospel of Jesus to the entire world, to every single nation that would, that would listen. And so there's a promise also that this gospel will be preached to all of the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. By the time we get to the end of the New Testament, what we have is in the book of Revelation, and that is there is still a time to come when Jesus, who came once, will come a second time. The first time that he comes, he comes to forgive sins. The second time that he comes is that he comes to end the reign of evil. And so we have a book that from front to back tells one story.
It begins by telling about the rebellion of man against God. It tells about God's promise to bring forgiveness and reconciliation to him. There are a number of of twists in the plot line until Jesus actually comes and provides a way of reconciliation with God and then gives us a promise that he will come again. In the meantime, we're left with a book that's remarkably coherent, that is free of contradiction, that is written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors, that tells one coherent, consistent story. There is no book like this one. If you've never read it, let me encourage you to do it. This book changes human lives. This book has changed history. It might just change your life as well. Read it. So welcome back to Truth and Life today. We've got a special guest in studio. We've had you here before, Nancy, but I want to say welcome back to Nancy Guthrie. Uh, Nancy leads a number of different uh, women's seminars um, as well. She's taught uh, Bible in her own local church, and uh, she is a wonderful Bible teacher. Nancy, welcome to Truth and Life today. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Yes, we're going to talk about studying the Bible. Love to study the Bible. You love to study the Bible. I do. Yeah. And we want to talk about the Bible's overall, what we call a grand narrative. Yes. So let's talk about that grand narrative, because you started talking about Christ in the Old Testament. Yes. Great many believers have difficulty with that, because, I mean, we know that Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Exactly. I mean, he shows them from the scriptures that the Christ must suffer these things. They didn't know that. But many people looking at the Bible today say, "I I know I'm supposed to believe that but they don't know how to do that, so help us out. Well, I think most of my life I saw, the only way I would have known to see Christ in the Old Testament would have been about some kind of formal prophecy about the Christ will be such and such. Right, so you're looking at Isaiah 53. Right, at, yeah. yeah, or in Micah, he, you know, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. So I would have th- thought of Christ in the Old Testament specifically in, in that regard. But there are many other ways to see Christ. So often, yes, he's prophesied, but he's also pictured. I mean, you mentioned uh, Luke 24, this road to Emmaus. When Jesus says to them, he says, basically, if you've been reading your Bibles, he says, oh, foolish of heart, so slow to believe, all the prophets had spoken. Um, he basically says, you should have known all about my suffering before gl- being glorified. Well, how would we have known that? Well, Isaiah 53 might be one thing, but how about when we read Genesis 3.15, right? I know you've written a book on Genesis and finding Jesus in Genesis. So can we just slide ahead to Genesis 22? I mean, I, we do a lot of stuff in Genesis. Yes. But there is Abraham taking yeah. his son on, up on Mount Moriah. Mm-hmm. He's been called by God to offer his son as a sacrifice. Basically, he's the firstborn. Because if I'm reading that without the overall storyline, I'm shocked how would the God of the Bible ask someone to sacrifice their own child? And haven't you heard it applied that way in a lot of times? I have. Well, I've heard it applied this way. I mean, you ought to be able to give up any good news. Exactly. That's what you hear. Yeah. So we, we, we look at the text and we make it immediately about us, yeah. right? Uh, we should be able to offer up to God what is most precious to us. When but that's in, not the story. When in reality, what this passage is about, it's, it's providing a preview to us of another father. 
whose son will carry the wood up the hill on which he will be sacrificed. But for this son, there will not be some last minute reprieve, but instead he will suffer for, for sin. And so what we're meant to do when we see this story is not say, oh, this, I must be supposed to be willing to give up what's most precious to me. No, what we're meant to see is that God was willing to give up what was most precious to him, yes. his only son for us. So instead of reading the Old Testament and reading it and going first off to what does this mean to me? Instead, first we have to say, what did it mean to them? And we understand he, he understood he was offering a sacrifice for sin. But then we have to go through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ before we get to what it means to us. And if we leave out those steps, we completely misunderstand. So, Nancy, I think this, this takes a lifetime to learn how to do this, but once... It's taking we, me that so yes, far. Yes, and it's taking me that as well. But once we begin to clue in on that, I think our Bibles become alive. Oh, my goodness, And yes. we'll see them in a way that we never have before. Nancy, thank you so much for being a part of Truth and Life today. Thank you for uh, your input into this. And thank you for your enjoyment of the Bible and your teaching of the Bible. God bless you for the ministry that you mm -hmm. do. Thank you, John. Yeah. Well, thank you for being part of this and please join us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Neufeld. Uh, John, just, just an interesting message. And uh, I think it's really important, isn't it? Because I think we don't talk about the Bible very much, even as believers sometimes. We sort of left it out on the sidelines of life. We don't know how to discuss it. We don't know how to present it. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, when people, you know, in the public, you know, talk about the Bible, they'll say, well, it's what you believe in without content to that. So that's your holy book. Someone else has got their holy book. And I don't know, I guess they're all the same, right? Yeah. And I think that's the general malaise of today. And I think we need to begin to speak about specifics. What is the Bible? Why is it different than any other book? I mean, I think it'd be a great discussion starter to, to say to someone, hey, yeah. you know that there is no book that even comes close to this one. Yeah. Can I tell you why? Yeah, yeah, for I think sure. it'd be a great conversation. And you know, I think the other thing is, I think we're a little bit ignorant of the word, even as believers. And so somehow we've got to get ourselves re-engaged in, in the Bible. Yeah, I'm a real believer in reading through the Bible every year in a chronological order so that we really get the storyline and it really begins to permeate our thinking. Now we've got to learn this thing again. For certain, for certain. So what's the final thought? What, 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 what excites you about the Word of God? Yeah, I, I mean, the Word of God is transformative. I mean, anytime we're talking to people or sharing thoughts from the Word of God, we know that the Spirit of God is connected with that. He's going to change human lives through that Word. Amen. Thanks so much, John. And thanks so much for joining us again this week. Remember to join us again next week right here on Truth and Life Today. Mm -hmm.